We're back with Robert Young Pelton and your phone calls. We'll take calls this hour. Robert, what was on Hamas's mind? Surely they knew Israel was going to retaliate in a big way. Well, I think you'd have to back up a bit. I think that uh, President Biden was sitting down with Mohammed bin Salman, and they were discussing the pros and cons of normalizing a relationship with Israel. And you have to keep in mind that Saudi Arabia, UAE, that, you know, Dubai, all these countries want visitors, they want investment, uh, they, want, they want to transition away from their oil-based economy. And Salman had a number of multi-billion dollar projects that one terrorist incident would destroy. So Hamas knows this. Hamas is not stupid. So they are watching the, the times change, and they launched this horrific attack. I mean, it was was huge. And this shocks the world into saying, whoa, stop, you know, can we normalize in that region? So it wasn't just one country. It wasn't just one attack. It was shutting down, you know, the whole basis of the Abraham Accords, which is to normalize relationships in that region. Was that, will you think, their mission to destroy that? Yeah. And so what happens is, you know, I spent a lot of time with jihadis and bad people. And when they do ambushes, just like 9-11, the idea is to create something that's so horrific and unthinkable that people overreact and they become the terrorists. In other words, they, they start pounding women and children in houses and apartments, and suddenly they lose the moral high ground. And, and we experienced that to a certain degree in Afghanistan and Iraq. We tried our best to you know, make sure that we didn't abuse civilians, but it's, it's almost impossible in a major conflict to do the right thing. In other words, how do you Absolutely. search people bad guys, right? Well, especially when the bad guys are hiding with some of the uh, residents and people like that. Well, of course, the whole infrastructure is designed to be, I mean, terrorists are civilians. Hamas is actually a little different than that they're actually technically a government with a military wing. But in most cases, terrorists are civilians. What would Yasser Arafat be doing right now? He'd be begging for money. He'd be and keep in mind that the Palestinian Authority is not Hamas, right? So the, the PA and, and Yasser Arafat had a, a really nice deal where he would get millions, if not billions of dollars to, to be peaceful. Egypt gets some, Israel gets some, and they would sit like that for a certain period of time, and then they get bored and they start something up again, and then another talk would go on, everybody get paid money. And it was a very systemic, cyclical you know, program of negotiation, peace, uh, flare-ups, violence, repeat, rinse, wash type of thing. Robert, what's going on with Turkey? They don't seem to be an ally like they used to be. Well, there are no allies in the region. I mean, the, the problem here is everybody has a different perspective. And, and, you know, Turkey has taken the side of what they call the underdog. And I think today they uh, Erdogan criticized uh, Netanyahu as the butcher of Gaza. So his, his sympathies are not secret. Uh, they had a conference, what they call the Arab you know, Nations Conference, but it also included Iran, which is very unusual to have Iran standing next to Saudi Arabia condemning Israel. So it's caused a major shift. And, of course, Russia it comes out on the side of Gaza. Now, none of these people are doing anything. But I'm saying that politically they're, they're causing a split between America's power in the region and Israel. Back to China for a moment, then we'll go to calls. The people in Hong Kong really aren't too happy with China taking over their their area, are they? No, but again, you know, you have history there where the British 
had Hong Kong as their little trading port, and it was a, a great escape for money from communist China. Uh, China views not only Taiwan as part of their natural land, but also much of the South China Sea. And, and if you've been following the news from there, they've been doing all kinds of crazy things. You know, I went out there and to see them. They're, they're constructing entire airfields and military bases on basically an atoll. So they're very aggressively and very slowly expanding their influence. Let's go to the phones with Robert Young Pelton. We'll start with East of the Rockies. Ernie's with us in Salem, New Hampshire. Thanks, Ernie. Go ahead. Hey, guys. Thanks a lot for taking my call. I'm a first-time call. I'm concerned about what's going on within our country right now. And I want to ask the ask your uh, guest, does he think there's psychological warfare going on right now to attack the Constitution and uh, misguiding a lot of people in this country and all the radical uh, senators and congressmen we have right now that want to attack law enforcement, they want to attack uh, the Constitution, and a lot of them really want to rewrite the Constitution that so many veterans in this country, like myself, had to have defended, and the uh, the attacks against some of our uh, generals, uh, asking, uh, calling out them, and, and wanting to assassinate them. Is there any psycho psychological warfare going on? My opinion, I think, is going on. I think a lot of propaganda is going on, and it's 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 kind of scary. And you know, the caller talks about all these uh, terrorist groups with uh, all over the world, but what about the terrorist organizations we have in this country? That are these lone wolves that are shooting up everybody, and now yeah, you got these senators that. and these congressmen pumping people up, and they're taking arms and killing innocent women and killing people. We got a problem in this country right now, and I just want to hang up and get his response because I was part of a unit out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, with the Psychological Warfare Unit out of the JFK Center, and I think they're doing a number on 30 percent of the American public. They believe all this QAnon rhetoric. So I'm going to listen on the other side, guys, and I want to wish you guys a Merry Christmas, and I appreciate you guys taking my call. Thank and you. one more thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm, going to, I'm starting an organization. It's a charity organization. It's called Smiles for Vets because the VA does not take care of veterans and their dental problems. The only way you can get your dental done is you have to be 100% disabled, disabled, and that's a national disgrace. So thanks a lot, guys, and stay safe. Take care. Thank you, Ernie. Your thoughts, Robert? George, I have to say something. Most people might not have caught that, but Ernie says he was at Bragg in a psychological operations unit. And one of the things that I lecture people all the time is that warfare is not absolute. It's not like an on-off switch. It's, it's sort of a slowly increasing uh, pressure put on people. And what he's sensing is not the old dropping leaflets from the plane type of psyops, but what he's feeling is a very conservative and very powerful psychological operation by foreign nations, by specialist organizations, through social media, through funding of certain people, to make people lose faith or lose sort of clarity in how the government works and how things, what's right, what's wrong, how they should think. And most people don't realize when they go on social media, they live in a silo. If, if you believe in a certain thing or you follow a certain um, person or group, you tend to get more and more of that same information. So you are quite perturbed about the very aggressive information that's pumped into your head. If you stand back and you look at everything, you can say, okay, well, everything's equal, but at least 50% of what you see on things like Twitter are, are fictional. They're, they're, they're hyper 
you know, sort of hyper... Fake news. It, it, they get you upset, right? And that's how they get engagement. So this is what he's feeling. And this was actually a science taught in special forces. I taught at the JFK, JFK school. So his, his, his thoughts are point on, aren't they? having a hard time expressing something that's very real. When you log on to a social media account, you start hearing from people who are really upset. You know, you start seeing news that's not real. It's like, so-and-so did this, and we got to get this guy out of office, and this guy's terrible, and this guy's corrupt. A lot of that stuff is energized by special interest groups. Not not me and you, not because we're concerned, but because they're paid money to sit down there all day with fake personas and push things into your brain. And that's what makes you think that things aren't right which is then the first step. And then the second step is I get angry at those people. And the third step is I start punching them or, you know, using violence. And the final step is all-out warfare. Let's go to Leslie, first-time caller, San Antonio, Texas. Welcome to the program, Leslie. Thank you, George, and thank you for your service. Um, Thank Thank you, you, Robert, for what you're doing, too. I called because I think I have a special perspective on Iran, Iraq, and Afghanistan. I spent three years in Iran, uh, 11, 1966 through 69, from 11 years old to 13. And it was a very cosmopolitan place to live, very safe for me. I could go out the back of the officer's club and walk down to my friend's house, you know, little kid with blonde hair, no problems. I went to Afghanistan, Iraq and then Afghanistan in uniform. I I worked with the Seabees in Iraq, and I saw what we did. We were able to build bridges and fix hospitals and allow people to vote with the purple finger. I don't know if you saw that, Robert. In Afghanistan, yes, in Afghanistan, again, what you had mentioned earlier, that working in small groups, having tea with the locals and stuff like that was very successful for the – Marines that we were with. I was in Camp Leatherneck. When the following group, the I think it was one mess came on and two mess left, uh, the, air, the airfield got bombed because he, that general, refused to, to work the same way that the previous general had worked in small groups, having tea with locals, discussing water problems, uh, medical problems. It was very successful, and the one, the the same thread that went through Iran, Iraq, and Afghanistan was that back in the 60s, everything was really going strong. It may not have been perfect, but women were allowed to walk down the street without wearing shadors, or uh, children could go to school, and. That's what a lot of the people were looking forward toward with the United States there. I, Iran, when it fell, when, when Carter pulled the rug out from the Shah, I think Iran was the linchpin for the entire Middle East. And what we're seeing today is a result of those policies in the Carter administration. And I would like your opinion on that, Robert, please. Well, it's, it's a lot of things you said are very, very appropriate and very true. The um, the westernization of the Middle East in the 70s was, I don't know if you remember this, but people could hitchhike from London all the way to Australia through Iran, Afghanistan. I think it was called the Hippie Trail, right? There was no fear of being waylaid or robbed. And then suddenly in 79, everything just flipped. And terrorism became sort of a major concern in that entire region. 
And yes, I would say that the shift in government then created a lot of money that flowed into different regions, which then created counter money from intelligence agencies. You know, we used to support Saddam. We used to send them tons and tons and tons of weapons. Uh, that's right. As a matter of fact, he fought the Iranians for us. Right. And then, uh, you know, most people don't realize it, but the war in Afghanistan, our war started under Carter with Brzezinski, but was basically picked up by Reagan. And then Reagan, for some unknown reason, needed to have a whole bunch of wars going on from Angola to uh, Afghanistan and then pumped millions, if not billions of dollars into these conflicts, you know, artificially creating massive war. So it wasn't just one thing. It was this whole tone of we have to get rid of this new religious sort of extremism, but we were actually funding religious extremists. So I'm sure there's plenty of books that you could read, but it was a mistake. It was we overreacted to a number of low-level quasi-socialist or religious uh, revolts, and we created this global form of terror. So we, we reaped that in 2000s when we went to the base of that place, because bin Laden knew we were coming. That was why he attacked not only the embassies in Kenya, but um, also in New York and taking down the World Trade Center, because he was trying to get us to come to Afghanistan, where he could fight them, just like the Russians. And we did. And we lost. So this is a huge lesson, but I don't know who's learning that lesson. You know, when we look at Israel and Gaza, there's a lesson there that these these are this is not a small conflict between two small countries. This is part of global destabilization. Let's go to Danny in Oklahoma City. Welcome to the program. Hey, Danny, go ahead. Hey, George, thanks for taking my call. Sure thing. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, I would uh, like to get uh, Robert and even yours, George, your take on. Uh, couple of things uh, that come come to mind uh, uh you know a couple of questions that uh, the mainstream media probably seldom if ever ask like for example at the beginning of the Biden administration um i, I never could understand why they advertised a withdrawal day like we're going to have a full complete withdrawal from Afghanistan on i think it was something like august 31st why would you advertise that to the terrorists, number one? And then, two, why would the bulk of the withdrawal just hastily start? It almost seems like at the last minute. It, it could have started months earlier that we could have got all of our equipment out of there and advisors that were helping us. And then, two, another question that they never seem to get around to uh, asking is um, in Afghanistan, or rather in Ukraine, Back in 2015, when uh, uh, Joe Biden was then Obama's vice president, um, he, if you remember, famously said, and they never talk about it, he told the uh, then the Ukrainian leader in 2015, if you don't fire that prosecutor that's looking into the bereavement dealing, uh, I'll have Obama to withhold U.S. aid that was already promised to that country. Why would Biden be even interested in that prosecutor in the first place getting fired? Do you know much about that part of the story, Robert? There's a lot of questions there, but I'll start with the first one. So <laughs> if you remember back in 2020, that under the Trump administration, we relinquished control of Afghanistan to the Taliban, which wasn't even a government then. And then we began pulling out units, fighting units, support units that were integral to protecting bases and, you know, are functioning over there. By the time Biden got into office, 
the military could not sustain operations there. And, and if you've been to Afghanistan and you've been to Bagram and all, these are huge, huge facilities that require thousands of people, and that didn't exist anymore. So there had to be a point at which we said, we're out of there. Now, I was involved in a lot of stuff with people who were stuck there, and we had made hundreds of thousands of friends. They'd fought with us side by side. They were translators, whatever. But um, those people were not given enough visas or enough time to get out of there, and the Taliban promised the Trump administration they would not uh, retaliate against them, which was false. So there's a, a series of events that led to our withdrawal, and I don't blame Biden, and I don't necessarily blame Trump, because you know I've been there since the very beginning, and I watched it just dissolve. Somebody had to pull the pin. Somebody had to say, we're out of here. There's no happy, complete, clean time to leave a war. So that's the first thing. Second one, I don't know much about, you know, domestic politics. I'm I'm a war guy, so I spent most of my time overseas, and and I don't really get into politics here. I, I just like to explain what happened overseas. You still making knives, Robert? Yeah, DPX Gear. If you check that out, DPXGear.com. I make beautiful knives for soldiers and people that actually use them out in the field, and. Um, it's just the thing. I like I like beautiful things that last forever. But uh, yeah, Robert, we've got about a minute before the break, and then we're going to come back. You, you still have your books still out available? License to Kill, the world's most dangerous places, etc. That's still available. Raven, they don't, my only novel I wrote for my grandkids, Raven. It's about coming of age and surviving. If you go to Amazon, all my books are there. You can click and buy them. You can buy them used. I don't get any money, but you know you can you can do whatever you want. But I. My books are, are works of love. You know, I'm, I'm a New York Times bestseller, but I also write books that I think are important, like Hunter Hammer in Heaven, about three different wars. So, you know, they're a they're, they're way I express things to people about my experiences in these conflicts. Where do you travel next? Uh, probably back to Ukraine. You know, uh, uh, wars are getting bigger, and uh, it takes a lot longer to get around. You know, like the Sahel, like Chad, it took me a long time just to get around the Sahara uh, Ukraine was huge. Gaza's tiny, but I have actually have no interest in going to Gaza because there's there's restrictions on journalists and there's plenty of journalists waiting to get in. But I think back to Ukraine. That's that's the big war for me. Did you ever meet Zelensky? No, I have not. And uh, but I, I'm not that kind of guy. I usually on the front lines. So yeah, you're I'm right. Not... You're you're with the troops. We're going to come back and take final calls with Robert Young Pelton in just a moment. And welcome back to Coast to Coast, our final segment with Robert Young Pelton as we talk about the worldwide events. Robert's websites are linked up at coasttocoastam.com. Let's go back to the phones. Let's go to Ron in Michigan to get us started. Hey, Ronald, go ahead. Hello, George. Hello, Robert. Hi. You know, Robert, I, I've heard this so many times that we should have followed Patton's uh, law and attacked the Soviet Union after we defeated Germany. You forget. You forget. Uh, the Soviets held a, a million Japs a, at bay in Manchuria, waiting for us to defeat the Germans so they could attack the Japanese and finish them off. You, you th my father served three years in the Pacific fighting the Japanese. You think he was going to turn around and start fighting an ally who helped him defeat the Japanese or the, or the, um, or the Americans in Europe who were fighting against the Nazis? They're going to turn and fight against their, their ally at that point. We, have not, we did not learn to, to hate them yet. It's absurd to listen to one mad general. And here's the problem, Robert. 
our our support for imperialism around the world after World War II got us into the position where we are at today, right here, right now. Your thoughts, Robert? Uh, well, first of all, Patton didn't attack Russia or Soviet Union. <laughs> he was angry that he could have been given more of a center stage. But at the end of the day, we spent a lot of time and money getting Eastern Europe back on its feet again. So it did cost us a lot of time and effort. It didn't cost us troops. And, and Soviet Russia was, was there for the taking, so they took it. And uh, we shouldn't have let it. What kind of an ally was the Soviet Union at the time, Robert? Uh, very poor, a lot of manpower, didn't really have a lot of fighting skills, very rudimentary equipment, and um, didn't quite know what to do about Hitler attacking them. And uh, us becoming their ally didn't necessarily make us friends. I mean, if you read the books of the time, and again, this is always before my time, but um, Roosevelt didn't trust Stalin. Churchill didn't trust Stalin, but he was a necessary evil. And he, Stalin killed more people than some countries did in World War II. Killed he, more of his own people. How, how did he do that, by the way? Well, Stalin had a... I mean, I was in Chechnya. I heard these stories. With, he would take entire ethnic groups, put them on boxcars, and move them into a zone that had nothing to do with them so they wouldn't be a threat to him. Uh, you know, it's a fascinating history of just how brutal Stalin was with his own people. So he was probably the, the, one of the masters of the pogrom, you know, just taking yeah. entire ethnic groups and removing them so they wouldn't be a threat. Unbelievable. Eric, truck driving in Indiana. Go ahead, Eric. Hello, George. I got a question for you. Um, but I want to talk about my country, tis of thee. I mean, uh, with all the people coming in from the border, and I'm not trying to change things around it, we're talking about, we talk about worldwide. We're part of this world, so we need to talk about our country a little bit here, I think. And, you know, with all the people coming in, and I ain't got nothing, I don't see nothing wrong with it as long as they learn our ways of doing things and stuff and our Constitution and that. Because if we don't teach them to live like we do in, in our world, then when we die... Who's going, to, who's going to preserve the Constitution? You know what I'm saying? Well, don't you think these immigrants, Robert, are coming here to live our way? Uh, no, I think they do what every migrant group does. is They assimilate to a certain degree, but they bring their own culture, their language, their food, the way their religions, whatever, and they shift the pattern of the country. I mean, at some point, I don't know the exact year, but it's coming up quick. Uh, you know, white people will be 49 percent of, of America, and that's not a bad thing. It's not a good thing. It's just a fact. So, you know, when the, when the English and the Scottish and the French and the Italians and the Jews and everybody came over to America, they influenced a little bit. They didn't throw away their previous culture. They they integrated as they saw fit. I will have to say, though, that the world is shifting faster in terms of migration. I mean, there's something like 70 million people that don't have homes that are on the move. So it, it, it's a big thing. When these wars happen, people move, and, and it's hard to stop them. If they want to get into a country, they'll get in there. So we have to accept the fact that every new person that walks across the border has some impact on our culture, on our lives, and our future of our country. Now, it doesn't mean that they're saying, oh, I hate the Constitution. They're actually coming here for the human rights, for the protection of human rights. That's right. 
Remember when they wrote the Constitution, it was for landowners, mostly white, not slaves, not women, and, and not Indians. So we do evolve. Let's go to Carson, California, on the wild card line. Carlos is here. Hey, Carlos. Yeah, well, good evening. Uh, listen, uh, for Robert, uh, you know, we do we seem to have a penchant for creating, deliberately creating agent provocateurs to provide an excuse for our military incursions. We created Saddam Hussein. We created Bin Laden, the Ayatollah Khomeini. And now Israel apparently created Hamas, and look at the devastation. Israel's taken over the uh, the Gaza Strip. Look at all the devastation that goes on. Uh, why is this? Uh, is it, do we deliberately create these people so we can have an excuse to, to just de- uh, devastate all these areas and take over them? Well, Carlos is... is- found something that not many people talk about, and that's why Hamas is in charge of Gaza. You know, we, you know, Bush, Israel, and uh, other allies had backed Fatah, and they wanted to get, they wanted Fatah to rule Gaza, but Hamas overthrew them, and they held an election, which was very, you know, poorly attended, and Hamas became the ruler of Gaza by default because of us, because we, we pushed too hard for Fatah. So, we did create agent provocateurs, and we did reap uh, the storm. We are Americans. We we live on an island, basically, and we don't get too upset about foreign events. So our government has to keep banging a gong and ringing a bell and scaring us into doing something because we don't normally just get up and travel halfway across the world and start killing people. So, yeah, it's a good point to look for these either false flag or agent provocateur events because Americans are not normally predisposed to go and fight wars overseas. Did Fidel Castro try to turn to us for help before he went to the Soviets? Yes, he did. And and by the way, he wasn't a communist when he started. You know, he was a lawyer. He played baseball. He wanted to come to America. Uh, we didn't help him, though, so because he overthrew Batista. And uh, obviously the Soviet Union reached out and began to work with him. And then he became this guy, this Apparently the the only guy that's impossible to kill, and he's only 90 miles away. It, it's a fascinating story, the the whole story of Cuba and the Cuban expats and how they became like the silent mercenary army and involved in all kinds of things from Watergate. And it's a fast. If you ever have a chance, crack a book and read all about Cuba and Castro and what happened. I'd love to interview Raul Castro, his brother, who's way up there in age. Well, I'm, you know, some of these guys are in my documentary, and some of the old uh, CIA guys, right, that were trained to go down and attack Cuba. And one of the things that really stuck out was how they were betrayed by Kennedy and how mm-hmm. his murder was facilitated by some Cuban expats. And he felt these these people from Cuba that came here escaped uh, felt very, very betrayed because of the Cuban Missile Crisis and Kennedy agreeing not to try to attack or invade Cuba. Didn't Ho Chi Minh from North Korea, uh, Vietnam also try to turn to us for help in the beginning? No, we did. He was an ally of ours. And, and uh, you know, again, the, the specter of communism in the 80s was much different than in the 50s and 60s. So, you know, Russia reached out to these developing nations, and uh, we began to actually fight wars with them, you know, starting in the 70s and 80s and actually, you know, the 60s. But, and that reshaped the world. Let's go to Brendan in Austin, Texas. Hey, Brendan, go ahead. Hello. Thank you, George, and thank you, Mr. Pelton. Sure. Uh, thank you for your patience and coming 
and educating the public on these topics because there's so much misinformation. So I'm sure it's like draining sometimes to have to uh, hear all these different perspectives and you have the knowledge and it seems like nobody else does. It takes a lot of patience and thank you, like I said. Uh, you were detailing a lot of different stuff and all the callers before is a perfect segue uh, that the foreign interventionism and imperialism and uh, the provocateurs that you were provocateurs that you were saying uh, ended up subverting the Central America. And that's what led to the immigration crisis was that we destabilized all these countries and they can't stay there. So they have to come here. But anyways, that was just a summation of what they were saying. I wanted to talk about timesofisrael.com, October 8th, 2023, had an article named Netanyahu propped up Hamas. Now it's blown up in our faces. That was the name of the article. India reported it. America also reported it. And like you guys were mentioning, we've supported and funded the Taliban, ISIS, and now Hamas. Uh, America also, this just came out in the news, has a quote-unquote secret base. I mean, we're talking about it right now, so it's not that secret, but 20 miles from Gaza that just got exposed on the news where we have thousands of U.S. troops already there and it cost $20 million, and the purpose of the base was to prevent an attack and to, like, give Israel information to prevent an attack. Uh, we knew before 9-11, before it happened, we knew about Pearl Harbor before it was going to happen. We, Gulf of Tonkin, we used that as an excuse. With Fort Sumter, Abraham Lincoln did the exact thing that the South said not to do that would cause an escalation of the war, and he did that. He moved the, Trumps to, or he moved the troops to Fort Sumter. And that's called crisis initiation. Uh, Patrick Clausen, representative of the White House, explained all of this at the Iran Policy Foreign Forum in Washington, D.C., September 21st, 2012. He explained how we use these events to escalate the war with people that don't want to fight with us. And part of the problem is that that's our money. That's American taxpayer money. Also, with the election that you were mentioning and other people have, that happened in 2006. 40% of Gaza's population is under 14 years old. So half the people that were bombing with American taxpayer money wasn't even alive during that election. And in the international news right now, and in the last couple months, we have American F-16s strafing fishing boats on international television like it's Vietnam. We're watching My Lai massacres before our eyes. Every I paycheck, every explode at some point. What's that, Robert? Imagine if you keep that much information in your head, your head's going to just explode. But the, you know, the only thing you need to ever focus on is is the reasons why we got into Iraq. You know, that's one of the clearest, most examined examples of moving the American nation from being completely uninterested in Iraq to suddenly thinking that we were going to go up in, in a mushroom cloud. You know, because of Iraq and, and there was no such thing. We'd been in the nuclear facilities. For 10 years, and they weren't even nuclear facilities. They were just labs. So if you want something that really resonates, the, the lead up to the Iraq war is really the, the big lesson. But I also want to say something that you can't blame an incompetent giant organization for being super smart and planning things. In hindsight, yes, it looks like this was a plan. But in actual fact, even if you knew every piece of 9-11, who would you take that to to prevent it? You know, the, the, and who would listen to you? Well, um, one of my friends 
called out Hani Anjur to the FBI, and he said, this guy is weird. He's, he's, he doesn't hang out at the mosque. He's just this guy, and he's trying to learn how to fly, and he doesn't want to land. And he went to the FBI and ratted them out, and he was an FBI informant. And the guy at the FBI said, no, we're looking for America. We're looking for white internal insurgents. In other words, we're looking for extremists. We're not oh, looking for blow that Muslims. Crazy times. Crazy. Exactly. So, I mean, it, it sounds simple looking backwards, but at the time, it's just, it's, it's a lot of things going on at the same time. And in the Saddam Hussein's case, had he not uh, gone into Kuwait, he'd still be around, wouldn't he? Well, okay, so another example of a perfect war was George Bush Sr. going in, devastating Saddam Hussein's army, completely wiping it out, and leaving which then angered Americans, like, let's, let's finish it, let's go all the way. But we got out of that war. Yep. Clean. And we, I forget how many casualties we had, but they were minimal. And we put a hurting on Saddam Hussein. So those two wars are worth looking at as the proper way to wage a punitive expedition and the improper way. Was Saddam Hussein tricked? Because apparently he went to April Gladsby and said, I've got to stop Kuwait. They're slant drilling. They're taking our oil. I got to stop them. And she basically said, we're not going to get involved in an Arab-Arab conflict. Right. And don't forget, historically, when you look at Iraq's borders and you look at Kuwait, these are, you can have all kinds of historical beefs because he said they were slant drilling, et cetera, et cetera. He just wanted the income. And at the same time, you know, when I was in Iraq, the Iraqis told me that they won that war. He said, we saw it on TV that the Iraqis sat down with the Americans and the Americans surrendered and they left. And I thought, <laughs> Amazing. Robert, stay in touch with us. I love your uh, analysis, and uh, you're a good guy for us. My pleasure, George. Robert Young Pelton, website linked up at coasttocoastam.com. Up next, saucers tracing the origins of disshaped UFOs.